0: consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com.
1: Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key all are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. and I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey girl. Hey, how's it going?
0: Oh, I'm good. I'm about to brag. Are you ready?
1: I, I know what's coming, but, and I'm not ready, but go ahead.
0: It's fall break.
1: For some, <laughs> for one half of this duo, it is fall break.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I heard a cough. Are you feeling under the weather?
1: I am. I, I've been fighting it off like you know when you can feel it coming on and you're like but I'm okay I'm fighting it off and I'm gradually like fighting less and less it's (laughs) (laughs) It's been going around the school of music a little bit but
0: yeah we have something going around too everyone's back in their petri dishes just passing things to each other also double reads. I don't know about you but During COVID, I was like, I'm never putting a student's read in my mouth ever again. But here I am putting all kinds of reads in my mouth now. (laughs) I'm like, give it to me. I can't tell. Just give it to me.
1: Let me test it. (laughs) And it's, I've been traveling a lot lately. And so I kind of feel like I have done the asks that are reasonable in terms of missing things for the travel that I had. So mm-hmm. I I don't want to go overboard and so I'm just trying to like tough it out and still teach and that stuff and wear a mask but I would love to just kind of stay home and <laughs> wait. <laughs> but it's not in the
0: cards. Well, tell us about your travels. This is so interesting. I can't wait to hear about this.
1: Yeah, so uh a week ago, I was in Los Angeles to uh, partake in the Getty Center's Indigenous Peoples Day celebration. So there were three of us, uh, myself, Carmina Escobar, and uh, Michaela Tobin, who were invited to perform scores from Raven Chacon's Forzit Shah. And they had them on display up at the Getty Center. And then it's interesting because it was very different from the Whitney um we were kind of outside almost as if we were art installations ourselves. So um, like, it was very empowering. I just like went out into this courtyard and started playing. And uh, if you're familiar with Raven's music, you know, he embraces like noise and unconventional sounds. And so just to kind of like loudly take up musical space in this museum where we, you know, have these ideas about what is proper behavior and to just like, Rah! you know, it was very empowering. It reminds me of that, uh, forgive the comparison, uh, but that Beyonce music video in the Louvre. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I hear my <laughs> native voice in this Getty up here. Uh, <laughs> But it was awesome. I got to hang out with Native folks all weekend and uh, also see some of my family who's in the area. And I finally got to try, you know, the pasta that you always see online that's like in a cheese wheel and they like twirl it around in the Parmesan wheel?
0: No. What?
1: Yeah. I'll send you videos. It's like they make the pasta and then the pasta is like boiling and they put it in a Parmesan wheel And it like becomes all cheesy. (laughs) And I've always seen the videos online and they look so good. And we were at a place. Surprise, there's not a bunch of places like that in Pullman. Uh, But in LA, the place I was at had that. And I was like, you know what? When in Rome, I'm going to try the cheesy pasta. And it was delicious.
0: (laughs) That sounds like heaven.
1: It was. And then you'll love this. So uh, my new album works for the bassoon by Maori composers. I really wanted it to come out on Indigenous Peoples Day. And basically everyone involved in the project, I was like, can you move heaven and earth to get this released on Indigenous Peoples Day? And everyone involved was like, yeah, no problem. And then we uploaded it and the distributor's like, it's still processing. It's still processing now. <laughs> I'm hoping to get it released for Indigenous Peoples Day 2024 at this point. Uh But <laughs> the place we were at is this uh place called Italy, And uh it's this italian place of italian grocery store restaurant and wine bar and my pianist who recorded with me fabio uh is from italy and so i was like oh i'll get him a thank you gift and fabio loves coffee so i went to the italian coffees and i just googled like what is the most popular italian coffee and it's called illy i-l-l-y and so i was like okay i've heard of it actually well so I was like, I got this great gift. I'm getting my Italian friend this coffee he can't get anywhere. Then on my way home, I'm walking through the Denver airport, and it's like Illy, Illy coffee. We have Illy, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was like, what? Turns out it's extremely easy to get in the United States. And I was like, so I got you the equivalent of Folgers. He's like, no, don't compare it to Folgers. <laughs> and I was like, but this is not. <laughs> it's not what I intended. <laughs>
0: That's like community coffee around here.
1: Yeah. I was like, it's the thought that counts. Drink your cup. Well,
0: but wait, what about the, what about the Frosty? That was the
1: trip before when we were touring Carolina and Fabio had never had a milkshake. And so we were like, and turned the car across several lanes of traffic to get to the nearest Wendy's so that we could get that boy a Frosty, which is different from a milkshake. I know, but still he was like, is it like a frappe? We were like, no. was he underwhelmed no he was like this is dangerous
0: (laughs) (laughs) well I love every aspect of all of that except for indigenous people's day
1: 2024 yeah someday hopefully by the next episode (laughs) I really don't know when it's coming out and I even like they have that customer service chat thing you know and so I like was like when is it gonna get released from the queue and they were like five days. And I was like, it's been longer than five days. And they were like, <laughs> our waiting time is five days. And I was like, this is automated. I'm annoyed. And <laughs> <laughs> what has been new with you lately?
0: Well, I have a really exciting step one of a project that I've been working on for I realized quite a while now. Um, on the 17th, I'm giving a recital that is a lecture recital. I'm not doing the lecture part. (laughs) I have, um, (laughs) nobody needs that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have an amazing musicology colleague named Barbara Dietlinger, who I'm collaborating with on this project. Um, But we're basically uh, bringing to life, bringing back to life the music of Elizabeth Gearing, Um, and TBD on how to pronounce her name because she actually had like something like nine or 10 nom de plume that she used. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there are many variations of her name, which is extra interesting. Uh, but the gist of it is that she was a Jewish Viennese composer who had to leave Vienna in 1939. Why? Oh, <laughs> mystery. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, for obvious reasons. She had she to leave resist. Vienna in <laughs> Before she left Vienna, she was actually a rising star composer there. I mean, her music was played by the Vienna Philharmonic. Wow. She studied with Schoenberg and she was very good friends with Schoenberg and also very good friends with Alban Berg. Wow. Her music doesn't sound anything like their music. What does it sound like? It sounds like late Strauss songs. Mm. I mean, very um, harmonically complex. Uh, super interesting, characterful music, and I'm telling you, Jackie, there is nothing like this in the oboe repertoire. We don't, we don't have music like this. It doesn't sound like the Strauss concerto, even though she lived very close to Garmisch. Um, I think a lot of her influence probably did come from Strauss, um, but it, it is completely unique. I mean performing it is, mm. is going to be really challenging because I've never, I've never played in this style before mm. in terms of oboe and piano repertoire.
1: Yeah. For us, usually it's more orchestral, I would think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And how often do you actually get to play late Strauss in an orchestral setting? I mean, yeah. for me, it's been, it hasn't been that much. Yeah. So the music is unique and very, very good and difficult and interesting. So she left Vienna, she went to London. And in London, they were like, we think you'll have a lot of success in New York if you get the right connection. So she relocates to New York, I believe she gets there in 1942. Wild coincidence, she was actually in New York at the same time that my grandparents were in New York. So Aww. my grandparents were teenagers. But you know, so they wouldn't have crossed paths. But um, I don't know. I just find that very satisfying.
1: Yeah, personal connection.
0: But once she got to New York, she got practically nothing. I mean, nobody paid any attention to what she was doing. She got a few performances, but nothing significant. Um, Her works were not positively reviewed, if they were reviewed at all. But she continued to compose until her death in 1980. Wow. Yeah. So this is, I mean, we have documents of hers where she is practically screaming from the page please somebody perform my music Mm. and she has a ton of letters of recommendation from musicians uh back in Vienna like Alexander Bünderer who was the principal oboist of the Vienna Philharmonic at the time and she just could get nowhere with anything and she pretty much died in obscurity and so Barbara and my uh, piano colleague, Michael, and I are working on bringing these pieces back to the public consciousness. Um, I think they are musically incredible and pedagogically incredible. Um, We are, you know, this is a multi-year, multi-pronged project that is going to have many, many fruitful branches on the research tree. But this lecture recital is step one. So it's on October 17th. At 6 p.m. Central, and it's live streamed, so you can go back and find it on. You can listen to it and watch it on YouTube later. So it's it's really exciting for me. This is one of the most fulfilling projects I think of my career. So um, I can't believe it's like happening now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> after so much time. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited about it.
1: That's amazing! I'm so happy for you. I've been knowing this was coming up behind the scenes, and Mm -hmm. I can't wait to hear it. I feel personally invested. Um, But I'm thinking back to our interview with Abby, and that means she was composing for the Viennese oboe? Yes.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. Had to have been. That's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that.
1: Wow. Well, I can't wait to tune in and watch. I'm so excited and so nervous. Time. Well, I was thinking <laughs> that's your second recital in the semester. Holy moly! For <laughs> order too, like dang. Hello. So your recital is October 16th. What else starts on 17th. October? Oh, well, let's say it's the 17th. But what starts on the 16th? <laughs>
0: An even bigger, better project.
1: An even Jackie. bigger double read event.
0: It is the voting for the double read dish fourth annual. Halloween weed
1: decorate decorating,
0: <laughs> decorating content, the weed
1: decorating, the content. weed
0: decorating content,
1: decorate your weeds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have gotten some amazing submissions that yes. I cannot wait to share with everyone.
1: Yes. So if you're listening to this, go onto our social media, all of the entries have been uploaded and you will just click like on whatever entry that you want to vote for you can vote as much as you want on both platforms for as many entries as you want you can leave encouraging comments and uh, yeah it's just kind of a fun thing that we do with our listeners every year and uh it's so much fun and we can't wait to give those prizes away on halloween Mm, scary Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at ChemicalCityReads.com. Hey, oboists.
0: Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Obo Chicago streamlines the process providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Laray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna.
1: We are so excited to have on Double Read Dish today, Ruth Ballester, oboist, for coming to us from London, England. Oh my gosh, Ruth, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much and it's really funny because I'm on how I'm seeing you on Zoom I actually now feel like I'm in America even though I'm in London.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we feel like we're in London.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I believe my computer what I'm seeing anyway it's very nice to meet you both.
1: <laughs> Can we start to get to know you a little bit better by hearing how you began to play the oboe?
2: Well, I really wanted to play the flute and when I was seven I waited a year in primary school because they asked what instruments you wanted to play so I waited a year to get the flute and meanwhile I'd managed to trip over a table in arts when we were meant to stay seated but I was in a rush to get something and tripped over a chair leg and had a big scar on my lip and because I had a big scar on my lip by the time I got to actually learn the flute after, after i'd waited my year i couldn't actually get a note out of it so anyway i struggled along for about two months um was really keen on learning all the fingerings and at that time there was a james galway album the golden flute was um was really popular and there was a little piece on that that goes duh, duh, lum, ba, bum. so i wanted to be able to play this learned all the fingerings and then what with my big scar and the lip it just went at which point it was decided that I was barking up the wrong tree. I mean, I was really lucky at that time. Um, music in schools was, was very well funded in the part of East London, uh, Waltham Forest, which is where I'm from. And fortunately, I had a multi-instrument teacher who had a big uh, rucksack of instruments. And he, the oboe was the next one in his rucksack. And he said, try that instead. And I kind of put it to my lips and this sort of huge honky noise came out. And they were like, she can make a sound on that so she can have that. One instead, <laughs> so yeah. So it was a, uh, it was more of a, more more of a chance, I suppose. And um, you know, I'd, for a little while, I, I remember uh, in my little album of pieces, it had um, first loss by I think Schumann is it, um, and I was play that and I used to think oh, the flute's my first loss, but but actually, I, I really got to love the oboe. And I, I like crafts a lot. I've always enjoyed sewing and knitting and things like that. So. An element of reed making when it's not under pressure i did enjoy that and but i've always had a love for the flute and i think one of the lovely things about playing first oboe which i was lucky enough to have the chance to do is is sitting by the first flute and i and um you know i, I work with some fantastic flute players and i really enjoyed that and how the flute and the oboe work together the blending those octaves and uh yeah it wasn't for me though <laughs>
0: So you have a really interesting career journey, which we will get more into later. But what drove you to say, yes, I'm going to be a professional oboist?
2: Uh, I suppose I just got more and more into it. So I got into it and then I went to my local music centre. And then then I kind of worked through the grades up to grade eight, sort of like got I got on with that. And then I suppose like so many things, um, I had an encouraging teacher and they encouraged me to apply for, to the Junior Guildhall School of Music and Drama. So it's from the the main conservatoire. They have a Saturday school, and um, again at that time we were so fortunate that the, the local authority had a. It was called a Junior Exhibition Award, and they actually funded me to go. So I used to get the train up. It's about ten miles from Chingford, where I'm from, into into the city of London, which was. I loved to sort of go to the bright lights and I used to get the train up there and I went to junior Guildhall for four years and then during that time the teacher said oh why don't you try for the National Youth Orchestra and and I did and got in that and in in sixth form then I had a bit of a choice to make which again is going to come back to something we'll I know discuss later which is I was taking music maths and physics and I think my dad, in particular, was anxious that I was taking too much of a risk being a musician, and and was really encouraging me to look at sort of maths and physics options. And to be fair, uh, I you know I did really enjoy maths and physics at school, and I was quite torn. But anyway, I I, um, I did apply to Cambridge uh, among other universities, and I did go there and read music, which was an amazing experience because there were just many fine fine musicians uh, when I when I. There, I mean, some of them were already my friends from the National Youth Orchestra. But, I mean, for example, Jonathan Kelly was there at that time. So, uh, the, you know, the, the very top university orchestra when I got there, I didn't even get in my first year. Uh, there was just such an incredible um, wealth of talent, particularly woodwind players, but also string players. The composer, Thomas Addis, was in my year there. Um, just incredible um, musical community at Cambridge at that time. Uh, which I really enjoyed being with there. I mean, you had to be sort of quite resilient because the standard was so high. And Mm. uh, anyway, I sort of kept going. I had my friends and friends there and eventually got into the European um, community. It was at that time now European Union uh, Youth Orchestra. And then I took the decision to um, go and study at the Royal Academy of Music in London. I did my postgrad study there. And then I went to study with Thomas Indermüller in Germany and I suppose all that time I suppose very long answer to your question but you, you I suppose I kept following my nose and I kept loving playing the oboe more and more um you know I'm quite hard working person and I was probably quite ambitious as well to do well with it um so you know I really worked hard and I was lucky I had people guiding me um the oboe tutor in the national youth orchestra at the time I joined was Celia Nicklin and she was my mm-hmm. teacher when I came down from Cambridge to learn with her then I learnt with her at the academy and um, her youngest daughter in fact is just a week different in age to me and was also in the National Youth Orchestra so we always had beds next to each other but she was like a sort of um, very guiding figure for me and sort of helped me make choices along the way and that, that enabled me to follow the, that path and, and make those decisions which opened up all those amazing opportunities for me. Those are two really big names that you just mentioned,
0: Celia Nicholin and Thomas Intermula. Can you tell us more about studying with them?
2: Uh, Yes, well, they they were both very different to each other. I mean, I think Celia was was um, like learning with Celia was was a very sort of musically enriching experience, but also combined with probably having what nowadays you would call a life coach. And there was a lot of chatter about how are you and how's your family, a very came about welfare. But then what she would always do is she had a concept in her head of of what was excellence, what was an amazing standard, what you would be required to do, how you need to play that first bar of the Mozart Ober Concerto, the, that first tricky entry. Um, what, particularly with the extracts, really uh, honing the extracts. She had a great sense of style. Um, you know, she could, you, you know, she told it as it was. You know, and one time she said to me, um, you yeah, know, Ruth, your sound is like a tennis ball without that hasn't got enough fluff on it. You know, it needs oh. to be rounder and dark. <laughs> so so I go <laughs> and think about my sound. And she did talk about some technical things. For example, she slightly modified my embouchure uh when i was about 18 when i started learning with her but but often about her it was about the concept of the phrase the concept of the music kind of uh, uh and in some ways there were exercises and things to do but quite often it was more of a kind of discussion and you were and getting that amazing concept of 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 what it needed to be and then when i went to learn with thomas indemuller he, he I suppose for me, I, I'd already had done that that previous study and I felt in some ways he was a bit more of a fix-it person. You could say, oh, my bottom D won't co- come out quietly. And he'd say, well, use." use more top lip, have more space underneath, keep your fingers firm, blow it with this slightly more, slightly less focused air, but, you know, really supporting it and whatever. Out comes your bottom D and you're like, great, thank you very much. But, I mean, <laughs> actually I did really like learning with him because I felt he he was more than a technician, even though he was approaching things quite often from a technical point of view. What I really liked, which... Um, how I sort of understood his philosophy was he was saying, you know, I want you to be like a painter, and I'm going to give you, help you to have all these things in your paint box, have all these colors, these brushes, these um, uh, textures, all these things for you for you to use, and then go and use them. But in actual fact, I actually, I found I really liked that way of working because I felt if what I developed from him was if you've got a strong technical basis then you can be quite in the moment you can be spontaneous you you can sort of dream up what you want to do and you do have the wherewithal to to deliver it but, but I mean he 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 he's an interesting character to learn with because he did tell he, he would also tell it how it is so um I mean once in the class somebody said oh um well you know how how do you get a job with the orchestra how do you do well in an audition and he just went play well <laughs> okay <laughs> then <Fair enough. laughs> so, so everybody now you know
1: <laughs> that's it we've unlocked the secret that's it
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I, mean, you... I mean you could
2: be more more broad-brushed with him in some in some respects. I suppose we see, you know, also I would work in a lot of detail of phrasing with these extracts. And then at that time, I, mean, um, I won the inaugural Isle of Wight International Oboe Competition, which later became the Isle of Man Competition. And as a result, I got this incredible prize to do a whole evening recital in the Wigmore Hall in London, which is the most amazing venue for recitals. And I, I'd done a lot of detailed work. And then when I was preparing for that, I said, how should I prepare for that? And he just said, just play it through, play it through every day. And that was interesting for me because I'd done more work at smaller chunks. That Actually, there was great benefit in just play it through. You know, do your scales, do your studies, do your warm-up, play it through. Next day, play it through. Remember what you wanted to change before. And I just kept playing playing it through the whole thing. Um, you know, and I, I suppose I also learned, was lucky sort of go and visit some classes like I um I had some private lessons with Nicholas Daniel, who also, also I think, is an amazing teacher. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, all the people that come by in, in London, various teachers, like, for example, people like David Theodore would come and take you through the extracts or Gordon Hunt, and it was really about honing your orchestral craft. But we're very, very lucky. I'm, I'm sure the same elsewhere. But in London, people would come and visit all the different colleges, and it was possible to hear from people who had different approaches in different fields of playing. I love that.
1: Could we hear more about your um, experience with competitions, winning, uh, what you learned, advice you would give for people competing, you know, at this really high international level? What can you tell us about those experiences?
2: Hmm. I mean, I have to say, I just really did that one. So I I feel there might be more people who've got more to say that have done more like the gilet competition or other big things like that uh i mean i just really prepared so much i recorded myself and listened to it i i've just really tried to get inside the pieces um i think i think something in any sort of solo playing is really important to have a sense of style for each piece so that that you you um in terms of its of the of the era of of musical history that it's coming from uh I also think in, in competitions in solo competitions, I mean I'm I'm kind of now saying that saying slightly different things than what I'd say for people preparing for orchestral auditions, but I think when you're playing a solo competition, A, it's got to be really, really good, a bit like the Thomas Inde quote. But I think also it needs to be, yeah, stylistically appropriate for each piece. And I think then you do need to bring some maybe a bit more personality and pizzazz and something that is your own than you might in an orchestral audition. And I think, I think in a solo competition, people are looking for someone who is an artist who's got a story to tell. Uh, maybe is almost bringing in some respects, again, true for all aspects of, music, of professional music making, but in somehow you're bringing almost a brand use, your personality, your interpretations. Uh, and I, and I suppose, again, solo playing as a, as opposed to perhaps an orchestral audition, and I would say there's a, a great deal to be said for having a read that is comfortable enough that you can do everything you want to. I think sometimes when people go and go and sort of try and present a longer solo program, and I've seen this a lot in final recitals at conservatoires, people would maybe in terms of read choice go for something that is perhaps what they were would would use if they were. Um, doing an audition playing Brahms Violin Concerto or something where you would want something really dark and chocolatey and rounded. And I think um, moving on now to talk about sort of final recitals, but I think it's quite similar. I think actually just having a read that is flexible enough for you to be able to have different articulations, a good dynamic range, uh, changes of colour, that you, that there is space for you to let the vibrato kind of come through and tell. I mean, this is this is really a personal opinion, so I don't want to say anything that is wrong in other contexts. But I, I do think as a soloist, we need to bring colour and interest and tell a story.
0: Would you tell us now about uh, your journey to your job as principal oboe in
2: the English National Opera? Well... It, um, getting a job in Britain, I think, I from what I understand, is is different to quite a lot of other places in that the process for us when a job comes up would be um, there'll probably be some vetting of the applications, there'll be a first-round audition, a second-round audition, and then a few people will be selected to come and do a trial with the orchestra, which could also include people who are already quite established and have a similar job maybe in another orchestra. Um, so some people come on trial from the audition and some people may be invited, although um, that's changing now the the and um, blind auditions are becoming uh, more the general way of operating. So essentially, there was a few people. There were a few people on trial for my job. I I did the first round audition, did the second. In actual fact, at that time, it was on an answer machine. I managed to delete the message by mistake, so I didn't realise I got a trial for a Eventually, <laughs> they got in touch and said, "Oh, um, would you like to come and sort of play Cozy Fantasy? So so I was quite oh pleased God. about that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, I mean there's, there's pros and cons I think of both methods I mean I, I know for other people it's like you you know you win the you win the job at a, an audition and then you do your trial year and everything is a yes and no on that which which can be difficult for people if it's a no for us um it having a few people on trial on ongoing um is nice that you don't necessarily change your whole life for something that isn't going to work out um, I'd say the downside of it is is for us so essentially that that job will be covered by people who are doing free, freelance work on a project by project basis, who are doing their trials. Is it can become quite attritional. It, it, you know, the, it, we can have these trial processes. I, I mean, if somebody did a filled a job like that in six months, that would be really quick. Could be a year, two years, oh. and I think something like the principal oboe chair where where it, it it's very personal what people feel about somebody's sound and color that they bring to the orchestra it, i mean sometimes these jobs we can have it rare, on occasion sort of rarely but on occasion where jobs just kind of kick around for years with various people going in and nobody's happy with anyone so anyway i, I um was got got my trial and and um I just made sure I hadn't really got any experience of playing in a, an opera to be honest so so I just made sure I always got the got got the parts from the library I got the score I listened to it with the score with the parts and and basically I I just prepared everything so much um because the job at that time it's a single principal chair in the orchestra now but at that time the orchestra was bigger because it was busier and there were two people sharing sharing that chair you two equal principal oboes and so for quite if it was a, a again a bit idiosyncratic to that company but if it was an opera everyone knew very well you'd actually have two principal oboes sharing that run which would mean you might get two Zitz probers and a, and a run through and that was all the rehearsal you got so I mean I was, <laughs> I, was, I was sort of in and out sharing and essentially I just kept preparing really well and I just kept going and after two and a half years on trial I got just got this miracle call which I can honestly say completely changed my life I was on a train I could tell you where I was and everything and then they said you got the job and I I was 25 and I was just so happy because honestly it it was just so wonderful to have that job it opened so many doors in my life and um, in fact I I went on to have a family and um, lots of people make having a family work in many different orchestras and ways of playing so so um, uh I'm not knocking anyone else's, but for me, actually having that stable and salaried job in the pits, uh, just just meant. I mean, in fact, I had four children, and it meant I could, I could bring up my family, and and you know, I, I also my husband was always really supportive of me. Um, he's a musician as well, and he plays in the Lion King. He plays the French horn in the Lion King in the West End in London. So he was quite often around doing that. So so um you know you you can be a parent mother or father and and go away on tour and there's lots of ways to make that work but as it happened for me it it having that job in the opera worked really nicely other good things about it are is, um, is you get to play such a amazing range of music um from across all the periods really and another idiosyncrasy about um, English National Opera is that when we um, did the um, early operas like Handel or Ramo, we'd still do them on our modern oboes, which I really, really enjoyed because I just I just think there's such richness for us in the um, in the Baroque era for all, for both double reed families. And for me, not being a Baroque specialist, still having the chance to play some of those wonderful melodies and, and just be in that environment. Hearing, hearing the super singing, doing the Handel operas was just amazing.
1: Oh, my gosh. I feel like there's a million ways that we could go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you brought up um, The Lion King and The West End, which got me thinking about show business and something I wanted to be sure to ask you about Um, is that you played the Mozart oboe concerto in the feature film Me Before You, starring Emilia Clarke, the mother of dragons. And I want to know what that experience was like. Tell us about that,
2: Drakkar. Oh, it was a bit of a whirlwind, actually. (laughs) Because originally I was meant to be um, in the orchestra for that, not be the soloist, but that um, somebody was ill. And so I got a message. I was actually, I put a friend of mine out, in Suffolk and I got the um, fixer. So the person that booked the orchestra for that rang up a day and a half before. And I just saw his number on my phone and I was like, oh, okay. And he just went, Ruth, you know, why I'm calling, don't you? And he went, um, you know, we need you to be the soloist for that now. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I've always kept the Mozart concerto going, you know, I practice it regularly. And one of my colleagues said, you know, if you're going to be the principal, player in an orchestra you should always be able to step in and cover for the soloist but I was a bit like oh, okay so anyway <laughs> I went so I came back from my friend's house and practiced like crazy and um in actual fact the day was a bit of a whirlwind so uh so we had to go to Marylebone, which is a, a area of central London and then there was all the um you know there was a huge, huge cast of extras. If you've seen the scene where there's, it's, it's like a concert. So there's sort of um, all these people were there, and they were all the ladies were wearing shawls or sort of draped around them because obviously thought if you go to a classical music concert, that they're sort of the uh, director's idea was you must be wearing a shawl. Um, and then I had lots of fun. It like I had my hair all done in this amazing sort of updo uh, with loads and loads of bobby pins and hairspray. Like when I unpicked it afterwards, I actually looked like the Medusa. <laughs> because it was just sticking out everywhere and then yeah the um you know the main actors we, we rehearsed it all they kind of had doubles to rehearse the actors so they could get all the lighting on and off and then then I I sort of had to walk on there was lots of walking on and off and people running around with makeup and sticking you know repowdering you and putting more hair grips in and a bit more hairspray and um yeah and then in actual fact we did it about three times and they just went Great, thank you. And then immediately that scene was finished, like an army of um, all the uh, crew from the film started getting everyone out, taking all the lighting down, taking all the sort of uh, mesh off the windows, and they kind of dismantled it. And I I think it was something like the call time for the entire thing, uh, costume and everything, was from 10 till 2, and we were done by about half one, and everyone went on with their day and did something else. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's amazing. (laughs) Did you attend the premiere?
2: No, sadly not. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I was listening to it. I think yeah, that was a yeah. It was just. I mean, there's there's quite there's there's lots of commercial work happens every everywhere, but there's there's quite a lot of commercial work for sort of film and television recording, and there's 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 various people that um, sort of get handpicked by various fixers to to go and record scores for film and television at either Abbey Road Studios, which was quite near this, where this church was, or Airline Studios is also an amazing one. And so people kind of book you for these things and you never know quite what it is. And so a lot of the, like I say, people just, you know, it's like, do you want to go 10 to 1 here? Can you come 10 to 1, 2 to 5, 6 to 9? Can you do this kind of, and it was, so in a way it was like that kind of a session. I and mean, I got a little bit more money, but not very much, but it, it was, it, I suppose, I mean, we're lucky in London that people are freelance. uh, You know, the people that are working tend to be working with a lot of different people, so... Um, all the time I was at ENO, English National Opera, you'd maybe go and uh, sort of cover for somebody. You do a chamber orchestra concert. You might fit in a recording session. I did used to dep on a few um, West End shows, um, mainly Wicked of late because my friends got the oboe chair. So, so I think a lot of people in London are kind of um, the people that are busy in the orchestras or swapping around doing different orchestras or. You know, maybe somebody's away, so could you do that from with a BBC Symphony Orchestra? Could you go and do that concert with the London Philharmonic Orchestra because they've just got back from tour and they're tired? Um, they're, that person's just had a baby. Do you want to go on their tour? Uh, or there's there's a lots of kind of um, boxing and coxing, and people are going around do, filling in all those different roles. And um, it, yeah, you have to be good at running your diary, and I suppose. In that sense, it was just came something that came through that sort of avenue as part of that work. Well, I
1: still think it's so cool. It's cool. <laughs> I, you know, no,
2: it's, it's quite, I didn't realize to to one of my girls, girls was like round at somebody's house and they were watching it and they were going and they were going, "That's my mum." They're like, "Oh," and they were like, "That's really cool." I and mean, they did know I'd done it, but but you know, yeah, that's that's a that's a nice thing to sort of. Um, I suppose there's a, the, there's so many things that I've done as a professional oberist and then there's a few like like to be honest i had done a list of sort of things things that sort of in case you were asking about stuff and to be honest I completely forgotten about that one <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I have a follow-up question because I believe you may have inadvertently unlocked a new fear which is you said that somebody once told you that the principal oboist should always be ready to fill in for the soloist. So like if there's a violin soloist and they get food poisoning, principal oboe is on deck with the Mozart concerto or the Von
2: Williams concerto to fill in. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose, I suppose essentially what my friend meant was, was you should be able to play what the soloist on your instrument is coming to play. Oh, OK,
0: but not just any soloist.
2: No, 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 not, not okay. any. <laughs> but I, I actually did think that that was a good thing to say, because, um, you know, I was at English National Opera for, for 25 years and, and, and I thought it was just a good thing to say, you know, f- if you're lucky enough to have one of these permanent positions, which I know um, there's there's so many ways to make a career and lot, lots of interesting and exciting, creative ways of doing all sorts of portfolio uh, careers and all, all sorts of things. But but if you happen to be lucky enough, it, it, even in this day and age, to get one of those permanent positions, I think what he was saying is don't forget you should be able to you should be able to play the concertos and you and I did I did really. Um, That's that stuck with me because you know, and I did really make sure I could still get around the Strauss, get around the Mozart, get around the Walliams. Get you don't that you don't kind of, um, particularly in the pit, you don't shrink to fit your job. That is amazing advice.
1: Um, Playing in an opera orchestra is kind of a unique opportunity that few of us get regularly, and I don't know. To me, opera is just such a special unique thing um could you tell us uh maybe a couple of your favorite operas to play or experience that you got to have in that unique orchestral setting
2: yeah certainly um i mean I, I i agree that you know like i think when you when you're in the opera pit you're just at this sort of you're in this huge world and i really enjoyed that being in being part of that amazing sound I have to say, I think for me the absolute highlight was playing the operas of um, Richard Wagner. was just amazing. Uh, just, just uh, he writes so well for the oboe. Interestingly, generally not too high. I mean, the exception to that is Meister Singer, which is much more in a kind of Mozartian register. And there's only two of you, so that is a bit of a killer. But I just I feel he so much of the music is rena- is narrated through the double reeds, bassoons as well, um, and and he writes for it in a way that is actually quite pungent and reedy. I suppose there's maybe an exception, again, being in Tristan and Isolde, particularly Act Two. Some of the colours are actually much more impressionistic there, but in general, the oboe is really at the heart of the storytelling, uh, and. And I really enjoyed that. I mean, for me the the most beautiful thing to play on the oboe is the Good Friday music in Parsifal, which comes in act mm-hmm. three. Um, and which I'd really recommend um anybody that doesn't know it to go and listen. So you can sometimes find it um as a separate sort of um extract. So it's called the Good Friday music, act three of Parsifal and and, and in Parsifal, there's just been so much sort of of a quest for the meaning of life. This sort of knighthood has lost its way, all uh, and you got this sense when you're playing it, almost like you're in the middle of a forest and you can't get out. And in the story, they get to this um, clearing, and then the the um, just this sunlight comes, and there's just this moment um, when the oboe just sort of drift, drifts in and just go. Goes... <laughs> and then off it goes because i can't i can't um do it justice singing but i would just it's just the the whole um enormous you know with the intervals you're talking five and a half hour opera just finds its redemption at this moment and the oboe is the one that brings it which is just such a privilege and another another great um Piece to play, which which again is just absolutely amazing oboe part, a gift I would say, and probably kind of the most demanding and the rich and the most fulfilling is the first oboe part to Deros and Cavalier, which mm. is incredible. And sometimes people play it as a, as the suite um, in concerts, but mm. but you if you do your your four hours in the pit, you really earn those moments. And uh, <laughs> you know he's such a he's such a wonderful writer for all of the woodwind instruments and. You know, I just think of this moment in Act One where the, um, the Marquess, she's singing about, um, she feels herself ageing, and then it says she sometimes goes round the house and stops all the clocks because she doesn't want to see time ticking away for her. And there's just a, a, a most amazing oboe story it goes... I can't sing it properly to do it justice. But again, it's just her... Her love of life, her feeling that it may be passing for her, but, yet yeah, she's such a generous character. And, again, in the trio, at the end, you know, when, when she's again, shows her generosity, that she's happy to to let the young lovers go and be together, even though she's giving up on something to do that, and then in the trio, and then you're just singing along, doubling the oboe line, so beautiful. Um, I suppose, really, the, the, in the opera repertoire, there's so much time when you're um sort of meshing with the soprano, or the mezzo soprano, and you become like a voice. And just finally another example I was going to mention was in the marriage of Figaro in in Dove Sono, which is the Countess's Aria. And and just just the mesh um, she sings da, dee, 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 oboe, dee, 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 dee. she sings. So you're literally carrying that line together. Although, of course, when it comes to it, you're sort of going like, please come in nice and soft. Please come in. I nice would just love you to dovetail perfectly with all, all those things that you're trying to go through to make those moments.
0: Um, so operas are notoriously taxing and long. Have you, like, what are some of your real hero moments in the pit? Have you done the full ring cycle
2: all in a row? No, I'm afraid we never did it. I mean, I've played, I suppose, I, I mean, I've played Gotter Demung and Valkyrie while at various stages of pregnancy, which I think oh. was... <laughs> 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 was like, in terms of, like, you know, physical endeavour. I mean, I think Valkyrie I was getting on for eight months pregnant. I was oh quite tired in that. But, I mean, it is amazing what you find you can do. I remember when we started doing Meister Singer, I thought this is I was saying, it's quite high register. I was thinking, this is not possible to do this. But you do build up in the rehearsal periods, and it's amazing you do find that strength somehow. And, and um same we've got a demo. I mean, you get to the final line. There's, there, I don't know whether it's psychological or whether it's just clever how it's written, but you get to the last line and you think, right, well, I am dead now, I have to stop. And then you've just got sort of one more line with a, <laughs> with a pause at the end. But, I mean, I never... I never had that feeling of, oh, I can't make it. But I suppose, like I said, these rehearsal periods, they do, you know, there is some sense in how they prepare you and build up, that you're gradually running it more and more. You know, you've got your stage and piano, stage and orchestra. Mm. Uh, so You've got the stage and orchestra, stage and piano, um, uh, run through the dress rehearsal. I, I found it was amazing what you could do when it came to it.
1: Can you tell us about your CD recording of Concertos for the Oboe by English composers?
2: Oh yes, certainly. Well, this is a project. Looking back, I think I was completely mad because I actually had two children under the age of two when I did it. It Something I'd always wanted to do. (laughs) And 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 it was just the chance came about and i and um like in terms of advice for people i would just say whether whether you're doing various projects or or working in the community or whatever your music's taking taking you and where where your double reed instruments are taking you i think it's all about taking seizing moments when they when they come and little windows so essentially had a um close family friend who was a conductor and we spoke about he had a connection with um, recording company and going back to the Isle of White competition in the, in the final of that, when I won it, I premiered Joseph Horowitz's oboe concerto. So, and I'd always loved the Vaughan Williams concerto particularly. So we thought, why don't we do a CD of, of English oboe concertos? So we got in, in touch um, with the company and they said that they already had the Horowitz, you know, really nice recording from Nick Daniel, but they didn't, they did, So they didn't need it. But meantime, I had written to Joseph Horowitz, just just sort of asking what else might go with it. And then he said his teacher was um, was Gordon Jacob. And he'd always considered that his first oboe concerto was one of his finest works and it was unrecorded and then it, it turned out I started doing a bit more digging around and it turned out the reason it was un, unrecorded was a sort of slightly uh extraordinary story um which is that he had written a piece for oboe and small string ensemble for Evelyn Rothwell later Evelyn Barbaroli um uh, when she was at the Royal College of Music I hope that's correct and um uh he then expanded it into an oboe concerto and she had taken it to her teacher who was Leon Goosens, who had thought oh this is rather good and he had basically said went behind her back and he went to Gordon Jacob and he said look it'd be great for you you know I'll do the premiere and um Gordon Jacob in in a kind of move which um uh, Evelyn Barbaroli later referred to it as sort of very out of character. She was very generous about it and said it was out of character, uh, and and it was just it was just a mistake. It was it was a sort of brief mistake. Um, said okay, so so um, so he got Leon Goossens to premiere the concerto with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and subsequently the work was dedicated to Leon Goossens. And so that this story happened. Evelyn herself was very generous about the episode. But John Barb who was her partner, who was a very influential conductor, was not. And he actually made sure that he never performed any works by Gordon Jacob ever again. And I wonder whether it was actually somehow this shadow over it that mm. kind of led to the fact that it was never recorded because it's a super piece and it's actually, you know, it's it's substantial, got beautiful melodic second movement. So it turned out that the, the record company were really keen to have that, and ASV with a company, and they were really keen to have that in their catalogue. And so because of that, they were prepared to help fund the CD uh, at the t- as it was at the time. So basically I then had a germ because I had the Gordon Jacobs uh, um Oboe Concerto number one in its world premiere. The, um, uh, there, A lot of the works were related to Leo Goosens, obviously, he was such an amazing figure in mid 20th century oboe playing, particularly in Britain. But um, so the Vaughan Williams Concerto, which he'd premiered, Eugene Goosens Concerto in One Movement, which Again, was sort of uh, there were no there was no kind of um, recent recording of, and then there was the Elgar soliloquy, which tied in beautifully because it turned out that it was orchestrated by Gordon Jacob, and again it kind of got lost during this process uh, of him orchestrating it, and and the parts had only recently been published. And then I stuck in the Holst Fugal concerto written in Ann Arbor um, uh, for oboe and flute at the end, which just made it into a nice album. But it was just all chance things. It was just chance that I knew the conductor, chance. And and really, um, it was so good of Joseph Horowitz um, to pass me on the, the information about uh, Gordon Jacobs' oboe concerto, because this was what made, really made the disc um, sort of more, um, I suppose, of importance and gave it, gave it the story and, um, just meant it was something, uh, you know, different and special in that regard.
0: I love that. And I love that, uh, you were able to bring it all back to life. Yes. Um, so we alluded to this earlier, but you are embarking on a very cool and interesting career change. So would you tell us about your new
2: journey? Uh, yes, well, um, I'm now training to be a maths teacher, so it's a completely something different. Um, I think we spoke about it earlier when I was saying that I was always torn between doing maths and physics uh, or music when I went to university, and, and I feel like the sort of mathematical side of my brain lay dormant for really many years. I mean, apart, apart from all the counting and all the things that we do actually as mathematicians when we're when we're playing, you know, we're doing all sorts of subdivisions and working with patterns and musicians are doing amazing maths all the time. But um, in 2018, um, I sort of had a bit of a niche, I suppose, and I started f- studying for a maths degree. Um, in the UK, there's the most amazing um, organisation called the Open University, which people can also access from other countries. But it was uh, founded as a real sort of idealistic um uh organization in 1968 so one of these sort of 60s uh great sort of movement for education for everyone and essentially it's distance learning but you can um do do a degree um, with them and fact my mum had done a diploma in sociology when I was growing up so um it's a big institution in the UK so I found out that you could get funding for maths because it was a skills shortage but also also I think I was just ready to do something else with my brain with that aspect of my brain because because I've been um in in my job for a while so I started my um, degree really very part-time in 2018 and looking back I would say it was partly for interest partly just to give myself a challenge and partly for a rainy day Um then when the pandemic came of course it turned out uh, as we all know but playing playing a wind instrument in a theatre where people sing was the absolute sort of sweet spot of impossibility mm-hmm. in the pandemic so we we had a lot of time off from the opera so I really pushed on with my studies and when I came back I I I suppose I just started to get a bit more ready for change and and meanwhile um something else that had happened was I would started um being a tutor for some projects being the oboe tutor for the National Youth Orchestra which was a great joy to me because I so loved being in that orchestra and I, and Um, Celia, my teacher, was so amazing when she was our teach, our tutor in the National Youth Orchestra. So I'd tutor for them. I suppose my children are coming through being teenagers now, and working with those teenagers. I thought I really love, I love, I love teaching because I'd also started teaching at Trinity Laban Conservatoire in London, which I've been teaching there for a few years. So I think it made me realize I have a love for teaching um I have a real love for being with teenagers even with all their ups and downs and um essentially I, you know I came back from after the pandemic I'd I'd worked really hard I remember it's probably the same for a lot of people each lockdown you've got a new project so uh, so mm-hmm. so my f- first lockdown one was I relearned and properly did all the gilet studies up to speed and really got wow. stuck in And I, I did all sort of various, you know things to keep my oboe playing going in each lockdown but I came back and Essentially, last year I was fifty and I'd been in my job for twenty-five years. So I just thought, for me, I was getting ready for a change, really. And I did a tryout with a school and um, for a three-week government-funded tryout because maths teaching is a shortage for us in the UK. And I, I did this teaching tryout and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, do you know what? I'm I'm ready to make a change. So I left the job at English National Opera, which I have to say was a big wrench for me because I've spoken to you earlier before. It's such a amazing gift in my life and been a big part of my life. And then I ke- I kept on freelancing and doing some concerts and bits of work with other people through till March. And then I had a concert come in with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. So it was Mendelssohn Scottish Symphony and Rachmaninoff's Third Piano Concerto. And I really practised for that. But I'd felt the last few times I was doing concerts, I felt um, I, I was just very aware that everyone else was doing it all the time and I'm training to be a maths teacher and so I really worked hard for that concert I mean one of my daughter says oh it's like your last dance and then I got even more upset but I have I, I played nicely in that concert and I finished up then but I'm I'm very much hoping to you know, keep a relationship with music. I, I'm not sure I'm going to play the oboe all the time because it is just so demanding with the reeds, but um, I'm still um, currently sort of um, helping out as part of the tutor team for the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain on on the odd project here and there. And uh, I'll definitely want to keep, you know, keep my oboe going so I can help out in the school. So I went, I went into the school I was in last year and I, I um so I, I made sure that I played played the played in all the concerts because at that moment in time they didn't have any oboes there. I was just there for a year, so I couldn't really start any off. But I, I played the oboe in the concerts, and then then uh, the conductor the teacher the, that was the conductor afterwards, he he said, you know what the the children said. They said, oh my goodness, Miss like like Miss, she really holds her oboe up well which made me laugh because of all the things that they'd picked up on. It was just <laughs> that I was sitting up and holding it properly. which was like <laughs> how they knew that something was different.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Um, Sarah Roper suggested we have you on the podcast because she, she knew. Um, we've recently had on uh, More Buron from formerly from the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra who also chose to pursue a different path. And we think it's really important to highlight these stories because as musicians, we all have different paths and we can really connect what we do musically with our sense of self and our sense of self-worth. And for some people, it will be, you know, charting a different path. For some people, it will be a dream that never comes true in the way that maybe they'd hoped or comes partially true. And so, Having a relationship to, or a concept of self, I guess rather, that isn't completely wrapped up in playing our instrument or in what we can accomplish musically, I think is a really important message to send, especially to young musicians. And I wonder if, I don't know, if you have any kind of thoughts or advice on that, or if that informed your decision in any sort of way. I don't know if what I'm saying is resonating with you at all.
2: I think your words are really beautiful. I am I was just really listening to what you were saying and I was thinking through my own experience. So uh, and it is funny now I'm just getting to the point where I'll meet people and I'll I'll say oh I'm a math teacher whereas was before I would have been a math teacher but I used to be principal obo at English National Opera but actually I'm a math teacher now. Um I mean I think uh, certainly when you're training as a teacher, you do have ups and downs. And there, there's a couple of times I didn't have such a good day. And then I would just think to myself, I used to be good at something. <laughs> but of course, you know, I, I hope I'll bring that to to um, that, that sense of learning to my students as well. Uh, in ten, terms of sense of self, I mean, I, I think you said it so beautifully, I'm just thinking what to add. I mean, I think, Musicians are amazing people that can do so many amazing things all at once and create something so sensitive and beautiful. And anybody who is trained as a musician is knows what excellence is, will be able to cooperate with people, will be imaginative, will be unbelievably hardworking. And we have so many things about what we've learned from being musicians that that are so useful to other people. But I'm not saying to everybody to stop, but I'm just saying going through a musical training and having that, that capability to perform in the moment, to be diligent, to be resilient, to cope with knocks, Uh, to ride those ups and downs, which, you you know, even um, going through music college or conservatoire um, can really bring those things. Uh, You develop so much as a person. So I suppose something that I'm still feeling my way through at the moment is sort of what sort of place... Uh, the oboe is going to take in my life at the moment, and and in some ways my transition has been slightly messy. I left the orchestra, then I started my teacher training, and then it was a few months later. I thought, is it really appropriate for me to be turning up in these orchestras trying to be the first oboe? But I do still love it. I mean, um, and and I feel like the experiences I had of being in the opera, also doing that other f- freelance work around London, my friendships. I feel I playing the oboe and having those opportunities has brought so much richness to my life but the fact that I'm not doing those things every day doesn't mean that that richness and all those things that it developed in me as a person are gone I've I've developed as a person because of all those things um and so yeah we we put so much into our music but we do have to be people as well and and I think that's slightly back to that very early question you were asking me about um, doing a solo competition. Yeah, we have to bring something of ourselves now. I think um, there can be a lot of anxiety about conforming to certain ways of playing, to, to you know, to to do well in an audition, or 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 to kind of be liked by your peers, or for the teacher in a particular school or class to further you but i i think actually that the fact that we are um people that are whole people that are rounded people and have integrity is so important and really actually in this day and age it's a good business model as well so many more people will be having portfolio careers even if you're in an orchestra now you're not just sitting on sitting on your bottom playing playing pieces all the time you will be going to do schools work you will be maybe going to prison or various community places you will be required to work with young composers so in actual fact yes it's it's great to bring in other things into your life as well as your playing. I mean, I'm not suggesting everyone sort of make such a drastic career career changes as I have, but, but, but I think we need to be people and be musicians, let the music being a musician, bring that richness to us as people, but not to be frightened of being creative around your people.
0: That was a perfect, beautiful way to close. Ruth, Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was fantastic. I cannot wait to share it. And I
2: feel really inspired. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure to um, meet you both. And you've made it absolutely lovely. So thank you very, very much.
1: Yeah. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Vote in the redecorating contest. Rate and review. Thanks. Love you. Mean it. Galit, who's on the next episode? I don't feel good. <laughs>
0: that was a good effort. We had a wonderful conversation with Ben Royal Ward, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at the University of Illinois. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade.
1: Go make read.